0: This path of cultivation is not limited to time and place. You know, the Buddha spoke about it as akaliko when we when we chant you know, praise or appreciation of the Dhamma, it's sanditiko akaliko. This word akaliko means means beyond time. It has implied in it that it's not it's not related to, to only some places and some times that we practice, but truth is Something that's always true. Truth is always true. It's like fire is always hot. That's always always the case. You don't have fire that's not hot. Fire is always hot. And truth is always true and is always available to be seen. For me, this is one of the wonderful things about the Buddhist path of practice. It's, It's not something that we have to put off our practice, to apply ourselves to. Even the idea that that you know, maybe I'm in s- obstructed in cultivating mindfulness and clear comprehension in this situation, yeah. and I need to go somewhere else, even that idea is actually something that we can apply mindfulness and clear comprehension to. When we, when we think such a thought, if we have a... a a personal clear here and now appreciation of what is meant by mindfulness and clear comprehension, well then when such a thought arises, we can hear that thought and we can see how we're investing energy in that thought and saying, well I have to go somewhere else to practice, Mm. or I want to be somewhere else, or I don't want to be doing this. And listening to those thoughts with mindfulness, applying our watchfulness, to those thoughts, we feel actually a returning to here and now, to this situation. Whereas if we're not mindful, well then we believe in the way those thoughts appear. And this is true for all the content of our minds and our hearts and our experience, that if we're applying watchfulness, then we don't get dragged into, so easily anyway, we might still well get dragged into things to some extent, uh, habits are strong, but we don't so readily get dragged into being fooled by the way things appear to be. And that's, so as I heard, that's something that we can do everywhere, all the time, whatever's going on, and whatever's happening, whatever our experience are we're, we're feeling afraid of, of something. We can apply mindfulness and clear comprehension to that. Mindfulness is is we're watching, we're we're in touch with it. If there's not mindfulness and there's fear happening well we're not aware that we're afraid. We might be afraid but we don't actually feel it. and The fear can be going on underground and we might be losing weight or building ourselves up into a nervous breakdown because we've got a lot of denied fear. But if we're mindful and present in the body and in the heart and the mind our feelings we have these foundations of mindfulness established well, when there's fear arising, well we know there's fear, and so we 're in touch with it we're not we 're not just dismissing it, and so the fear we can factor it into what 's going on and then if there's clear comprehension and the clear comprehension or the word sampa janya that the Buddha regularly used when he 's talking about mindfulness. I would regularly use Mindfulness and Clear Comprehension together or Sati and Sampajanya. The watchfulness is there. But there's also a perspective. A perspective on this, what we're watching. It's not just that we're in touch with what's happening. We're not just noticing that we're angry or afraid or greedy or whatever it is that is happening for us. We're also circumspect. We also know that, for instance, that uh, maybe we know that we get the recognition that we're always afraid. Or we recognize that, well, only when I come into this situation do I feel afraid. Now, Sampajanya notices that. Mindfulness is in touch with us, brings us in touch with us. The watchfulness brings us into that conscious relationship with what's happening. Clear comprehension gives us a, a perspective on it. And surely this is something that we can do in any situation. It is true that if our life becomes too busy and, and too active, well, this possibility is is uh, is obstructed. And so the Buddha did speak in, in praise of simplification. But we only need to simplify to the optimum degree. We don't have to all go off and join monasteries that's just not the case that's not suitable for everybody Mm. but that doesn't mean to say we can't practice so I would encourage a confidence that this path of cultivation is something that we can really progress on in all situations whether we're feeling healthy or whether we're unhealthy if we're sick in regards to this, I can remember Ajahn Chah uh, speaking to the monks and he was saying how sometimes monks come to him and say, oh, you know, I asked them how your practice is going. They say, oh, I, I haven't been practicing, you know, for several months because I've, I've been unwell. And he, he always says, well, if you can't practice when you're sick, you can't practice when you're healthy. Practice is something you do in all situations. They then go on and usually give the talk. Uh, is that not just when you're sick or healthy, but also in, in other situations, like when the monks would go down to Bangkok to renew their visas, and they'd come back, and Ajahn Chah would ask, how did you get on down in Bangkok? And he'd say, oh, and monks would re- often reply, oh, it's hopeless, I couldn't practice in Bangkok, there's no good down in Bangkok, and I'm so pleased I'm now back in the forest, I can practice again, get on with my practice. And Ajahn Shah would have this same kind. Well, if you can't practice in Bangkok, you can't practice in the forest. If you can't practice when you are tired, you can't practice when you're full of energy. In other words, practice is not limited to how we're feeling or the stuff that is passing through awareness. Practice is defined by how conscious we are of the stuff that is passing through awareness. So even when the stuff that is passing through awareness is, is tiredness, which we easily fall into the perception of, I'm too tired to practice, I've just got to go to bed because I can't practice while I'm tired. Actually, this is not true. If we've developed our mindfulness and clear comprehension, it is possible even to simply feel tiredness as a state, as an energetic, on an energetic level, on a physical level. You can sit there, you may not be able to put yourself into your best... Full lotus posture, but you, even sitting in a chair, you can feel this is the feeling of tiredness. Feel this, like and get a perspective on it, and reflect. Say, well, how does tiredness affect me, and reflect on that. And this is practice. This is mindfulness and clear comprehension. We don't have to wait till we're full of energy. When, as a young monk, I living in some of the monasteries I lived in, it, it was the regular practice that every full moon and new moon in fact, every half moon as well, every 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 week, one night a week, the whole monastery used to sit up and meditation all night. We would start at evening puja about seven o'clock, and and there'd be puja chanting. Would you know? You think that now ten or fifteen minutes is too much? or some of you do, but uh, I tell you that the puja we used to do over there was twice as long as that in Pali, and then we'd translate it all into Thai as well and uh, it was quite an ordeal and it would go on and on. So we'd do about an hour of this chanting business and then we'd start sitting. And we'd sit right through, sit and walk right through until 3 in the morning and then we'd do morning chanting. And that would be even worse than the evening chanting. And after morning chanting then you'd go out on arms round to the village and then come back and crash lose all mindfulness and lose all perspective, but it was always good for uh, developing endurance. Well, I say that because that was the idea, but yeah, it was <laughs> it was quite an ordeal. And If you don't have any samadhi, if you don't have the uh, ability to still your mind, then you're running on willpower, and um, it's, 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 it's quite a challenge. However, one of the lessons that I learnt in this practice, and I'm very grateful for it, was that it's not always the case that when you're full of energy you learn the most, because I would go off and one way or another get my hands on some coffee, I mean, it was always legally obtained I assure you, I wouldn't do anything too gross to get it, but sometimes you had to be just a little bit devious to get something, and, and then I'd take some vitamin pills and, and anything that I could stuff myself with to give me energy. And I'd be bright-eyed and sitting up there and feeling pleased with myself. But my mind would be all over the place. And then I'd go and walk meditation. It was like I was kind of like jangled. It was like I plugged into some electrical circuit. And then the next day I was a complete wreck. I talk about hungover. It was awful. But I survived and I kept up a good impression, I thought. But eventually I... I, I <laughs> I started to realize, well, that wasn't a very healthy approach, and it was taking its toll on me besides, and and I surrendered to just being normal, or trying to be normal and do my best, and, and what I did discover was sometimes about two o'clock in the morning when it really was, I mean, because it was sometimes very, very difficult. I mean, one meal a day, in those days I, I was a little, I was skinnier than I am now, and Didn't have a lot of excess energy and didn't have much samadhi at all. So it was really hard work to last through the night. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I was really scraping the bottom of the barrel for any energy. But miraculously, it was at that time when not only was I weak, but also the obstructions of mind were weak. The tendencies of mind, the proliferations, the fantasies, my stunning creative ability was also wonderfully weak. And it made the mind quite peaceful, and I learnt actually from that that it's not the case that you have to be full of energy to be mindful. Surely it's mindfulness and clear comprehension that we need to practice with, but you don't have to be full of energy, you don't even have to be healthy. And I spent a lot of time myself being very sick in those early years of, uh, as a young monk. And but being very sick and really under the weather and feeling really hard done by and feeling very sorry for myself is still, if we understand the principle of practice, we can give rise to mindfulness and clear comprehension. Mindfulness watchfulness is something we can cultivate in all situations. So it's important to understand this principle and not just think that we have to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed all the time to be getting on with our practice. And in fact, some of the time we're also so bright-eyed that we, you know, so our delusions are very bright and full of energy as well. And and some, sometimes it's the case that when you get really bright and full of energy. You can get also very seriously deluded. It's not always the best context for development of insight. However, mindfulness and clear comprehension are the uh, necessary uh, ingredients for the development of insight. So that, that needs to be understood. That What we're encouraged to do is to cultivate this watchfulness, to understand what's meant by mindfulness and clear comprehension. The Buddha used various different metaphors for these things. And we, we all know the teaching on the five spiritual faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom, these faculties need to be understood and and developed and cultivated and kept healthy like our physical faculties of see- seeing hearing smelling tasting touching and so on these faculties we maintain them and keep them healthy if your eyes start to go off well then you you get that book by Mr Bates i think it is and try to alter your eye correct your eyesight by doing these nice exercises that he recommended and if that doesn't work well then you go and get some glasses and uh, correct your faulty vision or if like me, your hearing is going from probably having listened to too much loud music, and my mother was right after all. And that's very embarrassing to have to admit that. Well, now that I'm over fifty, my hearing is going, and I, I've got to switch the telephone from one ear to the other before I can hear what's going on. And I'm always asking people to repeat what they're saying, and their faculty is going. So, well, don't just let it go. You know, do something about it. So I, I've gone to see the doctor, and he's made an appointment for me to go to the that department at the hospital where they test my hearing and maybe it just needs a little clearing out or something. But anyway, we look after our physical faculties and likewise we're encouraged to look after our our spiritual faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. And that would have spoke a lot about these, how to recognize them, how to maintain them, how to cultivate them. And the most important in the middle there is this mindfulness, sati. So, to consider it for ourselves, you know, if the Buddha made such a big thing out of it, I, I really better just, you know, nobody's talking about. It. Not just settle for, oh, Buddhism's about being mindful. Well, what is mindfulness? And how do you recognize it and cultivate it as a faculty? Some of the metaphors the Buddha gave are useful. Once in you know, one place, he talks about as like a gatekeeper. It watches over who comes and goes through the gate. That's helpful. Another place he talked about it as being in the watchtower, you know, looking over, looking down, looking over what's happening in the environment, what's going on. And these are, of course, relative to the context and the environment the Buddha lived in, the time in India. But we can apply these also for ourselves. I think of it sometimes as like of a firewall that, that Jayamano installed on my computer. You know, there's these nasty forces out there trying to invade my computer. Not that I've got any credit card details that are going to use to them on my computer, but you never know what else they might do. They might infect me with something and, and get in the way of you know, my dharma correspondence or something. And Anyway, Jayamano kindly put on this firewall that is there, it's like protecting and so watching to check to see whether there's any of these nasty forces trying to get in and, and recognises them and then it highlights me and says, watch it, there's somebody trying to get at you do you want to let them in or not? And then I can have a conversation and say yes or no to. Well this 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 I think fits with this faculty or well, sometimes in my mind I, I, uh, I personify this faculty of, of Mindfulness, the, the gatekeeper, and I, I talk to it and I say, Remind me about such and such. You know, I just actually, in my mind, I just I imagine I, it's like active imagination. I imagine there's this gatekeeper there in my mind, and I have a word and say, like, Tomorrow will you remind me of such and such? And, and it helps. You know, no guarantee, it doesn't always work, that, which is an indication of my lack of mindfulness. I imagine for the Buddha who was known as having Mahasati or great mindfulness or unshakable mindfulness that he probably could tell the gatekeeper anything and he would always be reminded. In other words, this is a faculty that we can cultivate and we can identify this watchfulness and see what happens when we do cultivate it. See what happens when we don't cultivate it, when we when we let our mindfulness slip around various areas, like for instance around speech, just as if in our daily life we get too busy and too active, we lose mindfulness and get caught up in things, well likewise if we get too fast in what we're saying, or too frivolous, nothing wrong with telling a good joke from time to time, but sometimes you, you know, the jokes get too thick and fast and and then we we lose ourselves, the next thing you know something hurtful comes out and and some real suffering and well, when that sort of thing happens, we could get all judgmental and give ourselves a bad time over it and and say, "Oh, I'm such an awful person for having such a, a racist view i mean sometimes some un p c comment might come out and and then we can uh, get judgmental of ourselves and Condemning of ourselves. Well, we could also be a bit, a little bit more tolerant and compassionate, and just say, "Well, lost my mindfulness," and apologise. Say, "I'm sorry about that. That was heedless. That was heedless, irresponsible." And uh, then to ourselves, make a very clear, conscious say, "Well, look what happens when I lose mindfulness. I say that, or I do that. Mm. You lose mindfulness in, around work." And you can get caught up in the idea the more work you do, the better you're going to feel. And probably by this stage of life, most of us have been got to the point where we realise that it's not like that. There's There's an optimal level of work we can do and then we need to rest. We need to just put everything down and be still and stop. Drop it. Get still and reflect and recharge our inner faculties now if we get too caught up in being productive for instance or pleasing the boss for instance or pleasing our workmates impressing our work, whatever the motivation we, we all know the risk of getting caught up in our business and our productivity and work too hard on that level and, and then we make mistakes maybe we get sick Well, instead of getting all judgmental and condemning of ourselves, we can also stop and say, well, lost mindfulness. That's what happens when I lose mindfulness. This is the result. When I lose mindfulness, this is the result. Suffering, pain for myself, for others. And really take it on board, really feel it. It's so tempting just to moralize, to conceptualize, to go up to our head and try and understand why did it happen, whatever. Well, there may well be a place for analyzing the, the dynamic that we keep getting caught up in, but I would suggest that that analysis needs to take place as a mindful, careful, quiet reflection, rather than compulsive, driven avoidance of the consequence of our heedlessness. In other words, when we lose mindfulness and we're suffering, to come back and really take it on and say, right, lost it, lost mindfulness, right, this is the result. Really feel it. Feel how How sad, how disagreeable heedlessness is. Mm. The Buddhist maxim of of heedlessness is the path to death. Mindfulness is the path to deathlessness, or however we want to uh, translate that word. Mm. To real life, mindfulness is the path to real life. Or another thing the Buddha said, mindfulness overcomes everything mindfulness overcomes everything so obviously we're not talking about common and garden variety um, everyday awareness we're talking about something that's been really cultivated really appreciated and right, this is a this is a faculty this is a force that can be recognized can be honed down can be cultivated till it's it's a transformative force it's a spiritual force it's not just the common and garden variety watchfulness that even animals have I mean, animals have got something similar to mindfulness but that's, it's much more than that that we need to be cultivating so this combination of mindfulness and clear comprehension uh, we're encouraged to work on these together as much as we can in all situations agreeable disagreeable healthy unhealthy fit tired familiar unfamiliar whatever Until what happens, as these two work together, the dynamism of mindfulness and clear comprehension takes us deeper. We become more agile in our attention. There's more we can look at. There are more states that we can accommodate. And as I said, we can go deeper in our investigation. We feel we have the strength, and mindfulness is like a strength now, concentration. We know the strength of concentration. Probably most of us here all feel that we could be stronger in our concentration. We pay attention to the meditation object, and poop off it goes, thinking about this or remembering that, whatever. And think, oh, my concentration could be stronger. And then, many of us in the beginning of practice used all our effort to strengthen our concentration, and there's some benefit, certainly benefit in having a steady mind. However, watchfulness also can be strengthened. Mindfulness can be strengthened and made consistent. And this is important. And and personally, I feel sometimes this is even more important for some of us than concentration. To be more consistent in our watchfulness is sometimes more important than to be stronger and brighter in our concentration. (coughs) The experience of strong, bright concentration is, uh, any of you that have done it for a while know how, blissful and beautiful it can be, but maybe it's just like having a lot of money. You know, I don't know if you, you know people who've got loads of money, but they don't have a lot of awareness, and, and the trouble is that all that money gets them into a lot of trouble. So having a load of money in itself is not the point. Being mindful actually is more important. Now being mindful without any money at all is bad news. But being mindful with just enough money, I would suggest, is the optimum. And so perhaps this is a useful metaphor for our practice, that being mindful is more important with a good enough level of concentration. But to be really strong in our mindfulness and our watchfulness and our attentiveness, and to recognize for ourselves how to cultivate it, and then what happens when it's there, and how we can go deeper. and and ask really, we can we can watch something steadily, consistently, feelingly—not just in an abstract, conceptual way—but we can go right in there, go right in there, and stay with it and watch it, and watch what's happening. We've got comp- clear comprehension as well, perspective on it, and you watch this dynamic. And previously, when when um, passionate desire would come along. And uh, you get possessed by it. You become a hungry ghost. And you just get possessed by passionate desires. Those of you that are familiar with the Buddhist realms of existence teaching, you know there's a realm called the realm of hungry ghosts, where, where beings are possessed by lustful desire. And uh, classically, this is the realm of, of addicts or addiction. And it's said that this is the realm that, regrettably, you get bought into after death if, uh, of this life, if, if one hasn't uh, used the life skillfully and just cultivate addiction, this is where you end up. And The image is of these beings with great big bellies with very skinny necks, and the suggestion is that it doesn't matter what you take, you can never be gratified. You always feel like you've got a big empty feeling in your, in your belly. And it goes even further to suggest that whenever you eat anything it turns into molten lead and burns as it goes down it 's a rather nasty sort of an image well you know don't worry about it too much the uh, The image is there to inspire us into practice not to fill us with dread of future lives uh, unless the dread of future life helps you in your mindfulness here and now the uh, the, uh, the image is to suggest that it, this state of being caught up in passionate lustful desire is excruciatingly painful. And if we don't have mindfulness and clear comprehension what happens is that well there's all sorts of things that can happen. One thing is that we can just repress it and have denied passionate lust going on and that can be driving us crazy, throwing us out of balance, making us sick on all sorts of levels. Or we can project it out and you can blame Blame the world. You can be suffering terribly, and you can say it's something to do with the environment. Or, you know. Monastics often, men- male—I don't know what the nuns get up to, but I know the monks often blame women. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. You know, monks get around as if you know they've got all their denied, passionate desires, and, and they blame women for it. And I suspect that the nuns have got a few views and opinions on the subject as well. but that's projection. That's not mindfulness. If mindfulness is not developed, well then we can't actually feel what we feel. Yeah. Same thing with anger. Some, something happens and then it triggers our anger and then anger flares up and we suffer, but instead of actually really mindfully receiving, holding, with clear comprehension, reflecting on this state of anger, we project and blame. Say, you made me angry you hurt me. How dare you, after all I've done for you, after all I've done for you, you turn around and do this. Blame the other person for our deep sense of betrayal. Well, when I say that mindfulness is what needs to be cultivated, that can sound like a simplistic answer. I'm not saying that it's simple and easy to cultivate mindfulness, but I do think it's important that we understand the principle that one of the reasons that we project our passions out onto the environment or onto other people sadly is because we don't have the strength of mindfulness we don't have the strength of watchfulness to be able to stay with it in a situation where it happens we can't be just working in ideal situations we can't just have protected environments where these upthrusts of passion are perfectly convenient and appropriate. And they happen when it's often, when it's unexpected, unhelpful, inappropriate. But the way to protect and prepare ourselves is to follow the encouragement of the Buddha to cultivate mindfulness and clear comprehension in all situations. You see, the image that uh, of Buddha images, sometimes people ask, how can we see Buddha sitting sometimes standing, sometimes walking, sometimes lying down and it's it 's for this reason that that this is a symbol of of mindfulness in all postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down is something the the Buddha often spoke about when teaching mindfulness it is something to do in all postures, in other words, not just you know sitting, standing, walking, lying down, but in all situations, whatever's going on, the encouragement is to turn to this faculty apply it, mindfulness, clear comprehension, and go deeper. Follow it through until you reach the point of resolution where you see and you feel. When you see, you feel. When you really see, when we really see something like doubt, maybe you've been pushed around with doubt for years, and you're always asking questions and having to have somebody give you the answer and you feel embarrassed that that you can't depend on yourself and you get to thinking that it's a permanent condition, that maybe you're somehow inherently a failure or inherently limited and you're always going to have to depend on other people. Well, it could feel that way. It's like children actually feel like they're always going to need mummy and daddy and children you know, mummy and daddy don't tell the children, Well, one day you won't need me until the children reach a certain age and then you do start to tell them and then the children grow up and then eventually the children come to realize well actually you don't need mummy and daddy anymore that's true but at a certain stage the the children actually believe that they're always going to have to have mummy and daddy around well also when our mindfulness and clear comprehension are not very strong we do actually feel like we're always going to struggle with these conditions like for instance doubt or loneliness sadness regret it's always going to be this way there's nothing I can do about it well that doesn't accord with the Buddha's teaching the Buddha encouraged there is something we can do about it we make this mindfulness and clear comprehension stronger which also means more consistent and better informed and when mindfulness is clear, strong, consistent and well informed then what happens is that we discover we can do something about it miraculously suddenly one of these situations where previously we've been tripped up And then flatten our face over some particular upthrust of energy or mental obstruction that arises, suddenly we find ourselves there with it and say, Wow, I can handle it. And you don't even, it's not even, well, you can lay personal claim to it, but it's much better to carefully look at it and say, Well, actually, it's not even me that's handling it. It's just being handled. Isn't that marvelous? Yes, it's the same feeling, the same distraction, the same threat but I'm not being thrown by it, it's being handled. and It's helpful to understand the reason these things can be handled is because these faculties have been cultivated. So appreciating how powerful mindfulness clear comprehension are in giving us the strength to feel like we can handle ourselves, bear with things, and then eventually the real point of all this work is we don't just bear with things but mindfulness and clear comprehension work together until it takes us to the point where we see through what it is that was obstructing us. We see it and say, like, oh, that's what it was. That's it. And it's not even I seeing it. It's, just, it's like just opening your eyes or the, turning on the lights. You know, you're stumbling along and you know what happens sometimes when the power goes out and you're stumbling around and trying to find the ma- matches to light a candle and you bang into things, you kick the chair, you bang into the door and you feeling for the light switch and you, you're all over the place and you think, oh, northern electricity, when are they ever going to get their act together? I mean, we have these winds every year, why can't they just get the power lines up properly or whatever, you know, <laughs> banging into things, thinking heedless thoughts and, and then suddenly, the lights come on again so you're, oh, and you're all right, you relax. you see where you're going in that's it we see where we're going and that's insight and that's the point that's what all this is about, surely that the suffering we experience is because we don't see where we're going. It's the suffering of ignorance, the darkness, of not seeing clearly what's happening, and then making mistakes and causing suffering for ourselves and for others. All we can do about it is cultivate this mindfulness and clear comprehension, discover the capacity for being more agile, more able to apply this in all situations, because we understand its value, and we want to be consistent, then understanding its power to go deeper until we actually find resolution. So when we experience the benefit for ourselves, well, then there's also a natural encouragement to keep it going. It's not just something we read in a Buddhist book or or something we think is a good idea, but we feel for ourselves, oh, this is powerful stuff, this mindfulness. This is not just an idea, this is, this is a force, a force of transformation, and really significant. This is like, it's like nourishment. And whereas before we maybe used to feel hungry in our hearts and, 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 and isolated and lonely. And When there's the power of watchfulness, the power of mindfulness there actually we don't feel lonely, we don't feel unable, we don't feel inadequate, we don't feel ill-nourished. So I think that's enough for this evening. Thank you very much for your attention.